Jonathan. Thanks for sticking around for this one. So this is not a history one, so you may be grateful for that unless you're a history lover. Uh, but this is dealing with a topic that is of a very personal and even existential, a crisis even at times in people's lives, and that concerns uh, the problem of evil, a realistic hope. So just last night I thought I'd just look around some major websites, news sites, to see if I could find some tragedies that were happening um, in the world just here this weekend even. So... Um, I found at least two people killed and six injured following shelling in Bagarad, governor of the Ukrainian-Russian war that's been going on for over a year now. There was a case of a woman was shoplifting when her car with two kids inside burst into flames. So now you have kind of a complex situation. You have two children with no fault of their own. The car burst into flames. You have like a, a criminal activity of the mother herself. Uh, but then other people involved with the tragedy of it all, um, even though they weren't part of the criminal activity. And then at least 120 killed and 400 injured in a three-train crash in wow. India. So that just happened just yesterday, three kind of news stories from yesterday. And it's for that reason that we have session four here. After discussing a living hope, the resurrection of Christ, a compelling hope, the meaning of life, a scriptural hope, the recognition of the canon, and a realistic hope, the problem of evil, uh, is where we are here in this last session. So first of all, some preliminaries to consider, and one would be the definition of evil. When people talk about the problem of evil, do be aware there's probably at least two, if not more, uh, meanings to the sense of the word evil that they may be using in different contexts. To make it rather simple, to stick with the kind of the two polarities here, we have the issue of like moral evil. This would be based upon the decisions of humans uh, to do evil things. So whether it's kidnapping or rape or personal injury or lying to us, etc., cetera, uh, those are done by human agency and they happen to us and so we are victims of that kind of evil. And so people may be asking questions about that based upon their own life stories and their life experiences. But another use of the word evil is what one might call natural evil. So things like earthquakes or uh, things like um, tornadoes where I live. Um, in Iowa, we often have tornadoes, tornado alley in that part of the Midwest, and even more further south. Um, and they have issues like epidemics and things like that. And so you have diseases and those types of facets that are more natural evils. So they're tied into the natural world. And of course, biblically, these are tied together in the facet that it is a fallen world in which we live. But those aren't like the direct results of a human agent. Uh, being involved in those types of evil. So that's kind of one thing to consider as a preliminary, preliminary idea. Another is the difference between a defense and a full theodicy. So a defense is simply a way of relieving the tension between the existence of God and the problem of evil. It's not trying to say we've solved the problem. It's not trying to say that we know the full mind of God and we know exactly why this evil happened um, and trying to, as it were, uh, defend all of his dealings and workings with humanity is simply a defense of alleviating any logical tension in the construction of the question. A full theodicy, I mean, if you break down the word, it's actually in the sense of justifying God. And so it's like, this is the reason God would allow that, and that would be a full theodicy. And the purpose this morning isn't to try to construct a full theodicy. In fact, uh, we'll see this morning that if there is any book of the Bible that deals most directly with the problem of evil, it's actually the book of Job. And Job does not get such an answer, even at the end of the day, if we're sticking with Scripture itself. And then there are some possible but yet incomplete answers in various contexts. So we perhaps would say we know the greater good that came from a situation. 
And so that could very well be the case in a specific situation. We may actually be reflecting God's thoughts after him when we uh, face a very difficult situation and we see some good that came from that. We may be thinking, well, I know why God allowed that. But just for a moment, kind of step back and remember, too, that we are finite beings who are not omniscient. And so we don't know the full mind of God and his intricacies of sovereignty in any given situation. So let me give an analogy here that may be helpful. Uh, Perhaps there is an unexpected death in a family, and there's a funeral, and let's say that uh, three extended family members come to Christ through that funeral. And so someone might say, well, I know why God allowed that tragedy, because three people came to faith in Christ. And that may very well be, you know, obviously it is a reflection of God's working in people's lives, and so you have a sense of some uh, a good that came out of a very tragic situation. But what would happen if three years later there's another tragic death in the family, a funeral, and nothing like that happens? Does that mean God's not at work because we didn't see such visible results that are available to our knowledge in the situation? What I'm getting at here is the importance of remembering that we are all finite, limited in our understanding of God's work in the world. And so sometimes um, even Christian leaders say things publicly that may perhaps reflect facets of truth, but may in fact not be the fullness of um, an explanation of God's sovereignty in a situation. So years ago now, Katrina hit, the the hurricane hit in New Orleans, and some famous uh, speakers and preachers in the media were saying, well, we know it hit New Orleans because of the sin in the city, and they're talking about the French Quarter and so on, but not even looking into it and how the French Quarter really wasn't hurt as badly in New New Orleans and some other areas of cities, um, including a seminary and churches and all kinds of facets. And so if you kind of dig down the details, it kind of, well, that makes sense to me, but it's not really the fullness of the data and of the evidence. At the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that we don't fully know what God is doing in a situation because we don't have a revealed text of Scripture in the year 2023 that is talking about current events and giving us what's happening in those contexts. Similarly, we can recognize the character development that came from a situation. Um, And God could very well be at work in developing people's character. And Romans chapter 5 talks about this. How through trials we develop perseverance and we develop character through the use of hope and love in a trial. And we could say, well, God's at work in that trial because that's being developed. But you still have facets of complexity there too, though, right? Because a very similar tragedy, trial could happen in someone else's life. And they don't get better, as it were. They get bitter. And they get angry at God. And it's not developing character in them at all. And so then if that's the only answer, and unless it fits that box, then we don't have an answer. You can begin to see the complexities of our ability to express and talk about what God is doing in specific situations. So I hope that makes sense. It's not to say those are bad answers. It's not meant to say that those aren't uh, various facets of true answers. Uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29 does talk about God is at work in all things and working them toward the good. And it explains that in the very next verse toward our becoming more Christ-like. It's not saying that the events themselves are necessarily good thought of in abstraction, but that God is moving them toward a good, but to acknowledge we may not fully be able to explain that and understand that. And as I mentioned, Romans chapter 5 does directly discuss the issue of character development through tragedy in Romans chapter 5 and how God, through trials, is developing character. So we have 
in chapter 5 and verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations or trials, also knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so, yes, uh, God can use those trials to develop character in us. God can use trials to drive us to him. To pray out and call out to him for wisdom in the midst of trial. James chapter 1. We need wisdom in the midst of trials and midst of tribulations. But at the same time, to step back and to acknowledge that we don't fully know what God may be doing in any given situation. Because we don't have the mind of an omniscient God who knows all things. And to acknowledge that. So those are just some preliminaries to kind of discuss Here's the problem of evil. It's often put forward as a logical argument. It's often said to be this, the one positive argument for atheism that is commonly used. What I mean by that is atheism often has negative uh, arguments like there cannot be a God because of these reasons, so he cannot exist. Um, logically, it's impossible for him to exist because of this. This is something put forward as a positive argument. Like, Here's evil, therefore there can't be a God. It's framed kind of in those types of terms. And so if you put it into a syllogism form, syllogism simply means that it's constructed in deductive arguments. So you have a premise, a premise, and the conclusion must follow based upon logic. Premise A, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, he would know about evil, he could end evil, and he would end evil. So if God is all-knowing, he would know about evil. If he's all-powerful then he could end evil. He has the power to do so. If he's all good, he would end evil, according to this premise. Premise B, there is evil. So now we have kind of like a square. Think of a square. In the one corner, you have all-knowing. Another corner, all-powerful. Another corner, all-good. And then the other corner, you have, but yet evil exists. There is evil. And this is arguing there's a tension. So the atheistic argument would be, therefore, such a god does not exist. It's logically impossible for there to be such a God. Now, constructed in this manner, you could begin to say, well, let's just lop off one of the corners, and then we don't have a logical problem anymore. No more conundrum. So you can lop off evil. Like, there is no evil. It's just a figment of our imagination. And um, it, it's simply an illusion. And there actually are some Eastern religions who take a rather illusory view of evil in the world, and they say that there are, are facets of our understanding of reality. But the Christian takes evil at face value. I mean, realistically, like, there really are bad things that happen, whether natural evil or moral evil. They really do happen in the world. If you lop off God being all-knowing, you could say, well, there's evil. He just doesn't know about it. If he knew about it, he could fix it. He's powerful and he's good. He doesn't know about it. But then, of course, you don't have the Christian God. You could lop off the all-powerful part, cut off that corner and say, he knows about it and he wants to do something about it. He just can't. It's just too difficult of a task for God to do. You have a very limited, finite God at that point. But by definition, he's not really God. And then you have the option of lopping off the all good. Like God somehow takes pleasure in all the evils of the world. And he could end things. And um, he has the knowledge about it. But he just wishes not to do that. Because he, in fact, is not an omnibenevolent, which is just a big word that means all good. An all good God. So this is put forward as... A syllogism trying to say that God and evil cannot coexist in the world. Now, all that sounds very like abstract logic type issues. And, and we get to considerations here. The first dozen or so will sound more like frameworks of that kind of 
logic in response to that, but I'm going to hasten to add from the very beginning, when we get to like statements, considerations 14, 15 around there, we'll be actually turning everything back to the gospel itself and back to the good news of Jesus Christ in scripture. If we learned uh, the key point of George's talk in session three, what was the, the key issue there? Share scripture. So in a sense, the first 12 or 13 points are just kind of prefaces uh, to well, where we will get with uh, the end there in points 13, 14, 15, that area. So let's talk about some considerations in a biblical theological framework. First of all, to speak of evil means it can be known, which implies a definitional standard. At this point, theists will actually turn the argument of evil back against atheists. So what's a theist? Someone who believes in the existence of God. And the argument is being used by atheists, so someone who does not believe God exists. But they would say, but how do you know and how do you define and call something evil? By calling it evil, you have to have a standard by which it fails to be good, and therefore it's evil. But if you don't have a God standard, then what is your standard to call anything evil? Um, you could say, well, it's the law. It's a legal issue. But I mean, laws change all the time. And if you go to different countries, there are different laws about what side of the street you drive on, for example. And so it's not an absolute objective standard about what's evil and what's good. And so sometimes, actually, theists would simply turn the argument back against atheists and say, to say that something's evil implies that we have a standard by which to measure it and to call it evil. But by what measure do we do that if there is no God? A second statement would be a good and omniscient God created the cosmos. And the world was created very good in original design and, f and final intent. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1. And at the end of every day segment there in Genesis 1, evening and morning of the first day, second day, etc. And what does it say at the end of every day? And he called it all good, right? And at the end of the creation week, he says it was all very good. So compositely. Uh, the cosmos as a whole was very good in original design, how God first made creation, and in final intent, like where God will be moving creation in the future. So kind of compare the first three chapters in Genesis of the Bible with the last three chapters in Revelation, and you have similarities about the tree of life and rivers and precious uh, like metals like gold and so on, and God's presence and being uh, with humans and fellowship with them, etc. And that's the final intent. Third, order, both natural and moral, is an aspect of creation design. In other words, I mean, Genesis talks about, um, in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3, God did not design the world to be without form and void. Tohu bohu. It was not meant to be without form and void. And so he's going to actually have in ordered a designed creation in Genesis chapter 1. And that includes both natural order. So you think of what we would call natural laws, such as the law of gravity that we mentioned earlier today. But also moral order, which is already found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That God said, if you sin, Adam and Eve... Here are the consequences. That reflects a moral order. That here are events, and here's what happens if this kicks in. This is the moral order at work. Just like there is a natural order. If you drop an apple from a tree, it will fall downward, right, toward the earth. So it's both a natural and a moral order in creation design. Number four, an orderly creation is necessary for stability. 
and regular divine interventions would destabilize the order, eliminating consequences. I know it's a big phrase, but let me just kind of uh, try to explain this uh, in, in simpler terms there. If we're concerned, like, someone fell out of a tree and they got hurt, okay, which actually happened to me. I was three years old, living in Montana, and or moving to Montana, actually, at the time, and I went up a 12-foot treehouse with my brother and some friends his age, and um, I'd never used a ladder before. My first time as a three-year-old, so I went up the ladder, hands first, followed with my feet. Uh, our moms called us down to supper that night, and so my brother and his friends left the treehouse, and they didn't bring me along with them, so I had to kind of do it on my own. And it made sense to me as a three-year-old, if I go up a ladder, hands first, follow with your feet, that you go down a ladder, hands first, and follow with your feet. And so I fell uh, 12 feet. To this day, I have about a six-inch scar on my left hand, or left elbow, and which they opened it up. And for whatever reason, I don't understand to this day, it was only local anesthesia. And they put a large metal pin in there, and then they had to set it for a while, and they took it out later. And you can say, oh, that's terrible. That's a tragedy. You fell out of a tree. But what would happen if God, like... We'll say, I'm not going to allow that to happen um, anymore for the rest of the month of June now. So people fall out of trees or they jump out of windows and skyscrapers and they don't get hurt because he suspends the law of gravity. So people like, jump out of uh, the 40th store of buildings and they just kind of float across the sky. <laughs> or they fall out of trees and they just kind of softly land. And he suspends uh, the basic laws of the structure there. Regular divine interventions would actually destabilize the order, eliminating consequences, right? I mean, we wouldn't learn from things if you were to suspend the laws of the natural order, the way that the world works, the cosmos works in its physical design. Moral evil enter the cosmos and the human race through the choices of creatures. Specifically, evil originated through the disordering of created goods. So here what we're talking about is how does, not natural evil, but how does moral evil enter into a cosmos? So at the end of creation, is the cosmos good? Yes, it's very good. At the end of creation, um, are humans good? Yes. Are angels good? Is whatever name you want to use at this point in uh, cosmological history, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, is he good? At the point of creation, yes. Is his mind good? Is his will good? All right, so how does evil enter into Satan? And one kind of possibility to think our way through this is the disordering of goods, that Satan, who is a good, a created good, puts himself above God. And so you're disordering goods. But the disordering of goods is actually the entrance of evil because it's actually pride and uh, this idea, you know, I'll be like the most high God and you can kind of think your own way through interpretation of some Old Testament text there. But for sure, the New Testament talks about how pride is the fall of Satan. It talks about that in the pastoral epistles. And so he is disordering the goods by putting himself above God in the midst of pride. In doing so, he's putting a good, a created good, above God. And that disordering is the origin, then, of evil in the world. And the same is true with Adam and Eve and the fall of humans. You have a disordering of goods. We don't Actually, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't give us all the full details of the motivations and the thinking of Adam at that point. 
uh, when Adam takes, uh, upon the recommendation of his wife, uh, from the tree. So we don't know fully his thought process in doing that. But he is taking a good from the creative realm, and he's putting it above the commands of God himself, the one holy and righteous God. And so it's a disordering of that. God honors his word, and the consequence of promised death compounded the problem. So, so now we have the situation. We have evil in the world, fallen angels and humans. And we can say, well, but God didn't have to then have a fallen world. He could just kind of say, well, okay, we'll kind of put that to the side, uh, those fallen beings. But he had actually made a statement that on the day that you eat of this, you will what? Surely die. If he doesn't uphold his own promise, we're going to have a much bigger cosmological problem. Because now we don't have a truthful, honest God. If God is a truthful, honest being, he must keep his promises. And his promise was, as, as it were, his promise, his warning really, is that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It's an outworking then, not only of the moral order of the cosmos, but his own word, his own permissory statement there in uh, the Genesis account. God also honored his word by providing the, rede the promised redeemer from evil. And now we have grace and mercy step into the situation. So in Genesis chapter 3, when God is cursing the ground and, and uh, you'll increase with the pain and you'll have sweat of the brow for the thorns and thistles that are infesting the ground and the woman will increase in the labor, uh, the pain of labor, etc. But what does he promise Eve at that point? What's, what's the good promise? There will be a seed who will come from her and although a Satan will bruise the heel of her seed, the seed will bruise the head of Satan. Now, the word is not used in Genesis, but in the history of theology, that's called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first good news, as it were, of grace, how God is promising. It's not clear yet, because we have uh, progressive revelation. It's not exactly clear how this is all going to work, but God is already promising a redeeming figure who's going to come from Eve and it's going to redeem humanity and through that, the cosmos. Actually, think of it this way. When Satan caused one-third of the angels to fall, he's probably thinking, this is awesome, victorious, this is great. One-third of all of them have gone my route. And then he, he tempts Eve and through that Adam, and then Adam falls, and he's like, this is awesome, now the human race is falling. But actually, the fall of the human race is the beginning of the demise of Satan. So why? Because angels are a company, not a race. Every angel is a direct creation of God. That's why they're called sons of God in some locations in the Bible. Each one is a direct creation of God himself, like just directly. While humans, we procreate, we are a human race. So by the race falling, it would be the mechanism by which the second Adam will enter into the cosmos. Christ could not be born as an angelic baby because angels don't have babies. But Christ can be born into the created realm, join us in time and space in the incarnation of creation because humans have babies. And God condescends, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he's going to restore the entire cosmos through the redemptive event of Jesus Christ. And so 
God is always outwitting Satan, as it were, in the midst of all this, because he's the creator. And Satan, of course, is a created being. Eighth, the Bible speaks of the unity of the human race and its solidarity with creation. So you have the unity of the race very clearly taught in Romans chapter 5. So in Adam, all sin, kind of an idea there. So the unity of the human race, but also the solidarity with creation. All of creation groans together until now, it says in Romans chapter 8. And so the fallenness of the world affects uh, the physical world in ways that God understands and has put into place, even though we may not fully understand all the details of that. But the Bible speaks of a strong solidarity, first of all, the human race, and then of creation. Ninth, an omniscient God knows all the possibilities of the world being other than it is. If we take seriously our own theology that God is omniscient, so what does that mean? He's all-knowing. Does that mean that, oh, this failed, this, this, the, my plan for the world failed, now what I do? I'm wringing my hands like, okay, that didn't work. Experiment A, let's turn to option B. No, because he's omniscient, so he is all-knowing, and he knows what an alternate cosmos would have been like if he had created and designed and sovereignly worked it out differently. He knows all those types of details. God's omnipotence has self-consistent seeming limitations relating to the entirety of his nature. So we define omniscience. What's omnipotence? How powerful. There are self-consistent, because it flows from his nature, seeming limitations. I put that in, square, in scare quotes because there are statements in the Bible that God cannot do X. It's not a limit of power, though. It's a flowing from the very essence of his nature, who he is. So there are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot change. He cannot sin. He can neither tempt nor be tempted. There are various statements in the Bible about things that God cannot do. But it's not an issue of omnipotence, right? It's an issue of the nature of who he is relating to the entirety of his nature. For finite beings to conclude that infinite wisdom would not tolerate present evils for larger or future purposes we do not fully understand could be presumptuous. Sorry for the long sentence there. What what I'm getting at there is actually we're headed with a statement from the book of Job. It's kind of like, okay, human, Job, were you there when I created the cosmos? And do you have the wisdom of the creator? And Job has to kind of step back and be silent before God. So if we know from our theology God is omniscient and he is omnipotent, uh, how could it be that we as finite beings who are not omniscient would conclude that infinite wisdom that we do not fully understand, Romans chapter 11, for example, uh, talks about this, the amazing knowledge and wisdom of God and how his ways are far past our ways and our ability to decipher them, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. So then 12th, to impose an individual human sense of justice founded on our finite knowledge upon a created order that we did not design could be presumptuous. Now I put the verb as could, because at this point we're just dealing with logical issues here, right? It's a defense, not a theodicy. We're simply trying to say there is no logical contradiction between there being evil in the world and the existence of God. And as finite beings who have limited knowledge 
um, it would be presumptuous for, presumptuous for us to claim otherwise when we don't have that full knowledge. It is logically feasible that an otherwise world could have an overriding disadvantages we do not know about and do not foresee. And we could sit back and do our you know, couch potato uh, coaching, as it were, like, oh, I wish the world were this way, or I would have done it this way. But we're not the creator, and we don't have the character traits of the creator God, who is omniscient and omnipotent. So this is where we actually see this directly from Scripture. It's fascinating as you read the book of Job. When Job asks, like, basically, like, why did this happen to me? What God does not do. God does not say, well, you know, if you've read the first chapter of the book I'm writing right now, uh, there's a situation, and the sons of God appeared in heaven, and Satan was among them, and he made this claim about you. Actually, Job never hears about that within the narrative. We as the reader hear about all that, but Job never gets that kind of information. And so in Job chapter 38, I just pulled out some key verses from chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding, or who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest at all. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou see the dominion thereof in the earth? So basically he's telling Job, you're not God. You're not the creator, but he doesn't answer fully, comprehensively, in a positive sense. He just says, you have limited knowledge and understand who I am. And so the response would be trust and worship of God, even though we don't fully understand all the details. We have incomplete knowledge of the situation. Chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understand not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. This ends up being the response of Job. Job doesn't respond by saying, okay, the light came on. I understand it all now, Lord. I know exactly why you allow this. Actually, his acknowledgement, his recognition is of the difference between God and himself. And even though he cannot understand it all, how he still trusts and worships the true God. Now, it is true in the latter part of Job, we do have God's return of blessings that are very tangible in Job's life. And so you have, uh, you know, children and property and so on. But in a sense, those are like icing on the cake, I guess you could say, that that's just kind of God manifesting his character in even uh, new and amazing, gracious and merciful ways. At the end of the day, the issue is simply uh, of the book that Job is not God and that Job doesn't fully know the mind of the Lord. So now we come to some of those kind of more turn toward the gospel type scenarios. So the first 13, the baker's dozen, um, are just some issues of kind of relieving the tension in the syllogism. And we'll come back to that later. But this is really where the rubber hits the road of dealing with everyday life of people who probably don't want to sit down and talk about 13 points about the problem of evil, even though these hopefully are based upon biblical theology. At the end of the day, what we're often asking, even our own lives and hearts and minds, is does God really care? Right. We're going through difficult times, and we're not looking for a download of abstract philosophy or logic. What we're looking for is a really relational question. Like, does God know what's happening in my life? And does God care about what's happening in my life? And the ultimate 
kind of pointer of that is actually the gospel itself. God is not distanced or disinterested in our pain, as especially demonstrated in the self-giving nature of the incarnation and of the cross. So there are various verses in the New Testament from various authors um, that actually talk about how do we know God loves us. Some of you could quote these verses. So what does Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, for example, say? But God commendeth his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 4. So coming from the pen of John, chapter 4, I believe it's... uh, Let me find the verse here. Um, In this was manifested, verse 9, the love of God toward us, because that God sent, what? His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. When When the New Testament argues that we should know God loves us, what does it point us to? Does it point us to our own sensations, our own feelings about that? It points us to the cross. We look to the cross and we know that God loves us. Or the famous verse that George mentioned in session 3, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about uh, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in a divine sense, love is a very self-giving uh, nature in divine love, and he gives of himself in the incarnation and the cross. The cross is the epitome of sacrifice. He's dying in suffering and in pain. But even the incarnation is God condescending from limitless, infinite existence to take upon himself without leaving deity behind, but taking upon himself humanity and the human limitations in the theanthropic union or the, the union of uh, humanity and deity, two natures in one person, taking it upon himself, getting tired, being hungry, being thirsty, etc. All of that that came upon him dwelling among us, tabern- tabernacling among us when the word became flesh. 15, evil will ultimately be used for God's purpose and to his glory. Now, this is a statement that is not empirically verifiable. For that matter, Every statement about the future is not empirically verifiable because it's the future. So we can't taste it, see it, touch it. Empirically, this means available to the sense experience. So we cannot sensorily experience the future because it's not here yet. It's impossible to do that. But in a Christian worldview, as we look into the future, the eschaton, uh, through hope and trust in God, and hope's the theme of the day, right? A living hope. We ultimately know, or we know ultimately, evil will be used for God's purpose and to his glory. And we may have facets of understanding of that. We have analogies that some people try to use when you go like to a jewelry shop and you look at the diamonds and there's the dark felt behind it, a velvet behind it. It just manifests even more the sparkle of the diamond, etc. So it manifests God's purpose and his glory even more so. But those are simply human analogies. Uh, to what may be at work in God's design. Number 16, the church is to be a spirit-transformed haven of compassion in the fallen world. If people are struggling with a problem of evil, like really tragic things have happened in their lives, the last thing that we need is to have them come to church and get hurt even more at church, right? We are to be a haven of compassion and love, biblically understood, right? Love is 
the God's best for the other. And it may be at times in some people's lives, they don't fully understand what God's best is for them. And they have kind of like a misconstrual about what love really looks like. But in our mind and in our hearts, if we are to be forgiving as we are forgiven, if we are to love as we are loved, then as a community, as a corporate body, we see manifesting this type of compassion in a fallen world that faces tragedies, that faces difficulties, because ultimately this is the Spirit's transformation. What chapter of the Bible is the fruit of the Spirit found in? Galatians 5. What's the very first facet listed of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. In fact, in, in Paul's writings, he talks about in that context and in Romans and implies in 1 Corinthians that love is the fulfillment of the law of Christ. And so Christ himself, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds another liken to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul says, if we have love and joy and peace, etc., Against such, there is no law. It's kind of like an understatement of irony. Like, if you have this, you actually are fulfilling the essence of the morality of the law. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. But we are fulfilling the essence of the original design intent of all that through spirit transformation. We, we don't look at tablets of stone external to us in 2 Corinthians 3. But the spirit writes upon our hearts right? He's changing us internally. The law can tell us what to do. It can condemn us. It can penalize us, but it cannot motivate and empower us. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace, and then we have the Holy Spirit to empower us, to motivate us, and to get us internally to do and want to do what we ought to do. And as a body of believers, that should be evident in our church. And as people are struggling with tragedy and difficulties and trials in a fallen world, that we are havens of compassion. So let's take all of that together and add another one here. Not all final answers come in this life, and in the end, evil will be conquered. This proclamation of the eschaton corresponds to the race's yearning. Remember the solidarity of the human race. We're all finite and fallen, but also creation's groaning. We see this in Romans chapter 8. It says that all creation groans together until now, but it is looking forward, of course, to a glorification and the redemption of our bodies, right? And so it looks forward to the future and God's work there. So let's kind of wrap that all up with a nice red bow, a ribbon here at the end. We're going to restate the syllogism we began with, but insert just a couple of key phrases that completely relieve the logical tension that we began with without cutting off any of the corners. All the corners are still in place, but we're going to relieve that tension. Premise say, if God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful, he would know about evil, and he would want to and could end evil in his all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful way and time. So God is all those things. Yet there is evil. Premise B remains the same. Conclusion, therefore, since God has not yet eradicated evil as a contemporary problem, he will conquer it in his all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful way, time, and purpose in the future. Remember the basic law of non-contradiction says something cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same manner. By entering into this field of God's outworking and history of his plan, we've completely relieved the tension as it stood in the original syllogism. There is no logical contradiction in God's outworking of plan. We may not understand it all. That's the point of Job. 
but we know there's no logical contradiction that God does exist, even in the face of evil. And ultimately, it's because of the gospel itself. God loved us and gave himself for us. The good news is I'm going to let us out here with three minutes to spare. We made up the deficit. Unlike the federal government, uh, we made up the deficit and we'll close in prayer. I'll hand it back over to Pastor. Father, we are so thankful that we could trust you, that you are sovereign, that you are powerful, that you are wise. You're also good and loving as well as holy and righteous. And we can entrust you with our lives, even the difficult times of our lives, even uh, perhaps tragic events in our lives, that we can trust you in the midst of darkness when we don't see the light fully, but we know that you are a loving, sovereign God. And so, Father, we pray that we would help to turn others toward you and toward your love. And we thank you uh, for the cross that you demonstrated, you manifested your love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we pray these things in his name. Amen. Yes.